BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and for Mina Kim, Facebook is inviting domestic and international regulatory blowback again to start, even if the social media giant is no longer blocking news posts in Australia to get politicians there to back down. Bullying a democracy is a bad look. Recently unsealed court documents revealed top brass knew for years the company was faking ad data. And there's that steady stream of news about content mismoderation, especially when it comes to politics and the pandemic. We'll talk to two top tech reporters about the troubles at Facebook next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and today for Mina Kim. Some might say we've grown accustomed to monopoly power in Silicon Valley, that we've come to accept that Amazon owns retail, Google owns search, and Facebook owns social media. But recent events at Facebook in particular demonstrate a tin-eared public opinion that may or may not lead federal regulators and lawmakers to step in, at the very least to take advantage of widespread dissatisfaction with the company's behavior. Joining me to discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly today, we have Elizabeth Dwoskin. Silicon Valley correspondent for the Washington Post, and Jeff Horowitz on the Facebook beat for the Wall Street Journal. Elizabeth, why don't we start with you? Australia. For the benefit of listeners who haven't been following, explain the crux of this conflict. The crux of this conflict is it's like the, the tech giants versus the big media players versus the Australian government. And, you know, Australia has a fraction of Facebook's users. Facebook has a third of the world's population um, as in its user base. Um, Australia just has 17 million of those users. It's nothing, but it's a test case that is being watched by regulators all over the world. I think for potential models for how you can regulate social, how social media might be regulated, these powerful companies with just enormous control over free expression and including the the news industry, as those of us in the media industry know. And um, and so, yeah, so there was uh, a law proposed in Australia, um, which would basically force Facebook and other tech companies like Google to pay publishers like the Washington Post for their content. Facebook was adamantly against the law. The whole industry was. They said, wait a second, we're, we're already driving lots of revenue 
to you publishers by through clicks and um, into your websites. And the response from the publishing industry that the government bought was, yes, but your clicks are so capricious. We remember, you know, you you give and take at, at our, you give and take revenue at, at your whims. We're subject to your whims, the whims of your algorithm. Sometimes we get tons of traffic from you. Then a couple of years ago, you make a big algorithmic change and we lose all our traffic. Um, and yet uh, the public depends on us and you're the platform that the public depends on um, for us to reach you. And so this law uh, started making its way through and Facebook said that if it did, it, they claimed they would be backed into a corner and that they would switch off news. Google said it too, but Google ended up negotiating. But Facebook um, did not take that conciliatory, conciliatory approach. And as the law moved, um, moved forward in parliament, Facebook overnight basically hit the kill switch on thousands and thousands of news sites across the country. Jeff, I'm wondering, you know, Facebook, as well as Google, they have been paying news providers uh, for news in other countries. Why is Facebook facing off this dramatically with Australia now? So it seems like it comes down to the voluntary component of this. Um, Facebook has cut a number of deals, as you noted, uh, with publishers in the U.S. and the U.K. and elsewhere that um, involve Facebook paying them um, to appear in a news tab, which candidly is not the most heavily trafficked component of Facebook's site. Uh, it really does feel like it's kind of a subsidy and sort of an effort to make friends. And um, both they and Google um, indicated they were up for those sorts of arrangements well before this law came into being. Um, the thing that I think has changed a bit is that there is an effort to basically force them to um, first negotiate with publishers as sort of a group and second of all um, to make payments um, that would be overseen by an arbitrator and I think that gets pretty close to uncomfortable territory in terms for them in terms of um, being treated like a utility and uh, perhaps having um, their fundamental decisions about how to govern their platform determined by an outside entity. You know, Elizabeth, uh, just watching this story unfold, I'm, I'm really taken with the fact that it's not even possible to imagine this kind of regulatory discussion happening in the United States. I think that the United States is going to have different kinds of regulatory discussions, but I was trying to think of like, you know, what are the historical precedents for, you know, the, the, U the only precedent really is a utility where the utility is really forced to, you know, charge certain prices and not go over those prices. It's a regu regulated industry, but the idea of yeah, forcing um, a platform to pay to make commercial agreements, you know, this agreements between two independent companies to force them to make certain agreements at certain prices. Uh, yeah, I couldn't imagine that happen in the US. What, what we're having in the US is a very different discussion around the role of um, policing, how the companies police free expression and antitrust um, and competition issues of which Facebook is also um, facing a, a huge sprawling antitrust case from the Department of Justice that the Biden administration is likely to continue as well as a wave of hearings. Zuckerberg is going to be you know, testifying um, in Washington again next month um, on all of these issues. 
Jeff, what, what's your sense? I mean, we've got the Biden administration putting Merrick Garland forth as, as its pick for attorney general. He's got a stated enthusiasm for antitrust cases, which makes it sound like he's going to continue what the, what the Trump administration officials started. Uh, do you think Mark Zuckerberg is paying attention uh, to the tea leaves here? Oh, certainly. And that's internationally. That's true. Um, the company, I don't know how much sort of pivoting they've done toward the new Democratic administration, um, at least in terms of their Washington shop. But they have been for the last few years increasingly focused on the prospect that governments rather than competitors uh, would be the biggest challenge to their business. And um, you know, in, in Australia, and I think, and here, I think uh, we have governments taking, as um, as Liz noted, uh, different approaches to um, just extreme level of discomfort with how big and influential Facebook is, uh, the magnitude of the role it plays in the dissemination of information and in public opinion. Um, and, uh, you know, Australia has taken this particular approach. The U.S. is is looking at, you know, potentially unraveling some of its mergers. Um, and I think all of this sort of just the larger picture thing goes to show that, um, you know, 15 years in um, uh, to this company's sort of dominance in the, in the public culture, um, we still have no idea how to adjust to the world that it has um created um and that's you know not a fault of facebook's it created something and we've all sort of adjusted to it but many of the institutions we do value and the ways we approach problems traditionally in government don't really work um, when in that system well along those lines elizabeth i'm wondering if we can jump in to talk about content moderation Let's use as an example the the riot in uh, Washington, D.C. in early January. Facebook seemed to go soft on some of the posts that led up to it, Uh, you know, the stop the steal groups, letting them fester when when other social media platforms like Twitter were taking a tougher stance. What was going on there, do you think? Yeah, for me, what happened in the Capitol riots is like, you know, covering this company in this world in Silicon Valley is it's one of, for me, it's like the most, one of the most interesting questions. Um, So if you look at it historically, you know, you were just not even historically, a few months ago there, we had a presidential election. We had a president contesting that election, um, those elections results. And we saw in the days after the election that these really large groups calling themselves Stop the Steal, some of them were being promoted many of them by by Trump and by his advisors, by Steve Bannon, um, we're, 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 we're kind of mobilizing in this movement to contest the election results. And when I talked to people at Facebook, what was interesting was that a lot of people at Facebook were saying, no, we have to shut this down. Like this, you know, we have these policies that, um, you know, we, we have a policy against misinformation about election fraud. Though if you actually look at the fine print of the policy, they said they weren't going to take down that misinformation. They were really just going to label it with a very generic soft label. So, but but the people who work at the company are saying we should be doing more. And what they did is they disabled in the days after the election, they took down one big group and they that's a big stop the steal group and they disabled a stop the steal hashtag. 
And then, you know, I think um, the country kind of started focusing on other issues uh, in the weeks after the election. You know, Biden increasingly looking like, a, you know, his victory is, is settled um, and the states were certifying their results. And kind of, I think when the world wasn't looking as closely as at Facebook, what they did is they just sort of allowed all these other stop the seal groups to proliferate and they allowed the hashtag back. And when I look at that, I say, wow, this is something that you already took action on. So you're already saying that it's something that you don't want. Um, and yet, you know, you just completely stopped after the election. You stopped policing that. And I, I try to get into their heads like, you know, that was something it, it just why didn't they keep up the drumbeat? And what that what that led to is that at the end of the year, when Trump um, and his allies started promoting the Capitol rally, um, you know, there, there was no action. And it's a really interesting question, though, because if you talk to certain people who work at Facebook and executives, they'll say there's this really fine line between, you know, it, speech and real world violence and real world action. And yes, we might be against misinformation on our platform, though they don't do very much about it. But they say we might be against election fraud. But if people really believe there was election fraud and they want to come together and protest what they believe is a fraud, you know, we we're not who are we to stop them? That's their genuine right to free expression and protest. And so there's this line between, you know, I think that they're looking at and saying, look, these people, they may have been totally fueled by misinformation and deluded, but, you know, they're using our platform to organize a public protest. And, you know, what they what they didn't pick up on were the signs of violence and potential violence that researchers had been warning about. And they let's, even went so uh, far let's as... Let's pause on that for half a second. Uh, we're talking to Elizabeth Dwoskin, Silicon Valley correspondent for The Washington Post, and Jeff Horowitz, Facebook beat reporter for The Wall Street Journal. What are your questions about Facebook? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook or email. We're forum at kqed.org. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We're talking with Elizabeth Dwoskin, Silicon Valley correspondent for The Washington Post, and Jeff Horwitz, Facebook beat reporter for The Wall Street Journal about Facebook. The good, the bad, the ugly. In the conversation by calling us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter or Facebook, of course. We're at KQED Forum. Email at forum at kqed.org. Uh, Jeff, let me throw this to you. Some of the some of the headlines we've seen recently about content moderation in particular, especially when it comes to U.S. politics, seems to indicate that uh, Mark Zuckerberg, CEO, has a habit of overruling his people. And boy, Facebook has hired a lot of people to try to address content 
uh, misinformation, disinformation, but but this seems to indicate like a substantial problem. This guy is micromanaging, or or am I reading it wrong? Um, I don't know that you're you're reading it wrong. That I mean, it is Mark Zuckerberg's service, and um, he treats it as such. Um, that has been um, kind of the way it's been from the beginning, and I think for a long while, um, Mr. Zuckerberg was very happy to. Um, sort of delegate some of that stuff. It candidly wasn't where his interest was, but increasingly as kind of the societal pressure points arose on this thing and it became relevant to how his product was going to be perceived and regulated, um, he's gotten more involved. Um, I think that, that um, you know, there's always a bit of, yes, there are a whole bunch of procedures, but in the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's very hard in many instances to come up with a, conclusive set of rules that is going to sort of clearly adjudicate how any particular situation should be handled, right? There is, you know, a, whether you're going to ban President Trump uh, from the from the platform, you know, that you can cite a whole bunch of procedures for it, but whether you make that decision or you don't is um, kind of binary and, uh, and there really isn't, you know, you could go either way depending on what arguments you muster. So, I don't know that it's it's so much of a thing that's just Mark Zuckerberg can't resist meddling so much as it is that at the end of the day, somebody has an awkwardly large amount of control. Um, and, uh, you know, whoever that person is and however it's done, it's the results aren't going to make anybody particularly happy. I suppose it's it's worth pointing out that, you know, when decisions needed to be made about the riots on uh, January 6th that uh, Jack Dorsey of Twitter basically said to his number two uh, chosen for that <laughs> emergency situation, you handle it. I'll go with your decision. Uh, and it, it does sort of reflect a, a different management style. Um, you know, Elizabeth, we're, we're seeing Zuckerberg also come out front uh, in a different way, uh, bashing Tim Cook, CEO of Apple. Uh, what's going on there? You know, usually it, it, it seems that, I don't know, a head of a company tries to take a, not necessarily a conciliatory approach, but, but you know, like the, there's a sort of a, a politics of politeness. Yeah, politeness has kind of gone out the window. <laughs> Um, first of all, you pointed out Dorsey, so I can't help but saying that he was also in French Polynesia at the time on vacation. But he is much more of a, del <laughs> but he is much more of a delegate, and he runs a separate company, Square. But he's a he's much more of a delegator and hands off than Zuckerberg. I think you know how Jeff Jeff was saying, you know, that this one man has an awkwardly large amount of control. He's also an extremely competitive person who really believes that Facebook is under siege and that he needs to protect his company. And what we're seeing is like in all these spheres where you would think that they would want to be a little more cautious, more diplomatic, as you said, what we're seeing is instead they're just going out of the gate being really aggressive. And one of the examples is this battle with Apple that they've really escalated where Apple has made um, some changes to its data collection practices that limit how apps, many apps, including Facebook, can collect a lot of data, which impacts Facebook's revenues. And instead of going quietly or negotiating behind the scenes, which they tried, they are now this, you know, using every opportunity they can to attack Apple and attack Tim Cook, even on 
Facebook's most recent earning call, earnings call, Zuckerberg said, you know, that they're talk effectively said that they're they're talking a lot about privacy, but in fact, you know, this is just about their competitive interests and, you know, very brazen, similar to what they've done in Australia. It's a very, these very brazen moves, these escalating strategies. Now, what do you say to those folks who say, okay, this is a perfect example of how, you know, ultimately Facebook isn't a monopoly. And for that matter, Apple, because uh, they're fighting each other. They're fighting each other for control and dominance. I think um, have we lost. Have we lost? Oh, there you are. Yeah, I know. Sorry. Uh, yeah, you haven't lost me. Yeah, that's that's what's also. You're right. I mean, people are looking and saying this is this is a battle of the titans, and where do the do the consumer? Where, where's the voice of the consumers? Where's the voice of the people in it? I mean, Facebook says what they're doing is um, for the benefit of small app developers, but we all see through the you know read through the lines very clearly, and it's for the benefit of Facebook. And Apple says what they're doing is for privacy, but we know that it's for the benefit of their business. And I think that comes back to these questions around whether technology platforms should be regulated or whether the government can can do, can or should do something to rein, rein in, because it's not like consumers have a say in these battles. Uh, Jim tweets uh, a question that I think I'll, I'll put to Jeff here. Uh, how things are done in Germany, where many American tech companies have unionized employees when no one else has. Do we need mandatory labor representation on corporate boards of directors? Uh, thoughts on that, Jeff? Um, are we talking about mandatory labor representation in relation yeah, to, I, the, to the I, tech I think companies? He's, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I think in, in particular to Silicon Valley companies. Uh, I I think that um, this kind of goes back to the the question you were asking about procedures for making you know, for sort of overseeing the platform. Um, I, yeah, I think there's there's um, with Facebook's board there has been a lot of reasonable concerns raised that particularly given that it can't overrule Mark Zuckerberg based on the, um, uh, the distribution of voting shares, uh, that there's sort of some question as to sort of the, the full independence of the board and how meaningful it is uh, to Facebook in terms of a check on Mark Zuckerberg, um, if one would be needed. Um, so yeah, I don't know if if subbing out. Uh, I suppose having someone, some someone, an entity that was a little more combative would certainly be interesting there. Um, but the um, for employees to to, I think employees and employees have played a big role in sort of pushing back on some of these companies, Facebook in particular, um, both in terms of sort of public advocacy and also providing um, folks like Liz and me um, information. Uh, you know, there's there's been a lot of stuff in the over the course of the last year um, in terms of the Black Lives Matter prote protests, in terms of um, how Facebook was approaching the 2020 election, uh, where employees have made a big difference um, in terms of the company's approach. So I think it's an interesting idea that you might be able to formalize some of that. But you know, just like with Australia and um, the the approach they've taken to Facebook. That would be just a wildly different approach than 
the way that things are traditionally done in the U.S., right? Uh, there's just sort of, you know, kind of not no mechanism in U.S. law for that to be to be the case in the same way that we wouldn't ever be having quite the same discussion that Australia has had. John writes, Zuckerberg's judgment in regulating the use of his platform to spread lies has been sorely lacking. Every time he's called upon to do the right thing, he either does nothing or the wrong thing. What kind of action do you think the government can or should take in light of the corrosive effects of the spreading of lies that his platform enables? Elizabeth. There's like the million dollar question is what can and sh what can the government do and what should it do? I think, um, you know, there could be some laws that get passed that regulate some of the speech on social platforms. I don't know if we want to hold like a tech company liable for just imagine if, you know, one of the hundreds of millions of people on Facebook, you know, go on there and put out some false information knowingly or unknowingly, do you really want, you know, is, is a tech company really responsible for that? But at the same time, if they're letting certain groups, you know, are not doing enough, you know, enough investigation or enforcement, they're letting certain groups routinely spread this kind of misinformation. Should they be punished for that? I see it more in the areas of hate speech. I think in particular, hate speech and violent speech, you know, they've done a, a bad job with that. It's a very tricky area because of the First Amendment in the United States. Like, it's very, you know, we basically allow any speech unless you're going to say, I'm going to kill somebody, you know, or I'm in the, the perennial metaphor, unless they shout fire in a crowded theater, which you're not allowed to do. So the law has to decide, well, what is the digital equivalent of shouting fire? How do we define that? And should the tech companies be punished in some way? if they don't take down content that falls under that definition. I could see the government, um, especially the Democratic Congress, passing some kind of rules that um, put more responsibilities on the tech companies to take down content within a certain period of time and give more private, you know, private rights to citizens to sue the tech companies for not doing so. I also think there are some interesting developments in the area of civil rights that we saw over the last few years. Um, Biden has elevated a couple people, um, lawyers, several lawyers who have sued Facebook um, on civil rights issues. And these are these are called like algorithmic civil rights issues like Facebook, for example, is a big platform for job ads and credit card ads. But how do we know that their algorithm doesn't allow you to direct ads to certain people of a certain race or a certain age or a certain gender and not others? And does that count as digital redlining? Some of the people who have really pushed forward on those cases are now high up in the Biden administration. And I can see some regulation in the civil rights area as well. You know, Jeff, it's interesting that Elizabeth uh, mentions algorithmic uh, uh, software that's, uh, you know, running this whole advertising company. Uh, Zuckerberg has described Facebook as an advertising company primarily. Uh, and uh, yet we've seen in recently unsealed court documents uh, that uh, Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg has known for years advertisers have been fed fake numbers, inflating estimates of how many people 
campaign's reach. Um, obviously, this has got to play out in the courts. Uh, but what's your sense of, of what kind of damage has already been done by this release uh, to the relationship Facebook has with people who spend money on it, which is to say advertisers? So there's been a, a history of um, sort of distrust about metrics on Facebook. Um, I think something that's worth um, uh, worth starting off with here is that Facebook as an advertising machine does seem to work very well. Um, there's just, I mean, there's no question that it is, it has been very effective for advertisers. It has launched many, many businesses. Um, uh, it works for targeting. Um, I think a second thing that is sort of unquestionable is that um, every media-based business ever and Please, anyone listening, feel free to call in and let me know uh, a caveat to this. Um, every sort of form of media has been busted for um, messing with its circulation figures um, in one way or another. There's a reason why, um, you know, Nielsen does TV, why there's audited circulation for uh, newspapers. Um, it's because it appears to be irresistible to um, tamper with the, uh, the numbers a bit. So in the past, Facebook's had an issue with... Um, Sort of, there was a, a glitch slash uh, intentional error regarding video ads uh, and what portion of people watched them and for how long. Uh, at the moment, the lawsuit you referenced is um, sort of based on the question of audience reach, which isn't so much um, how many users saw a particular advertiser's ad, it's the total possible audience that an advertiser's ad could be shown to. And what has been found is that the number of 18 to 34 year olds in urban areas, which is the highest value demographic, often outstrips the number of 18, 34 year, 34 year olds in urban areas that actually exist. Um, and that's you know in the US and in other countries as well. Um, and there's, as you note, a lot of evidence that uh, Facebook was aware this was an issue and um, at least internally that there was um, some level of concern that uh, they were providing dubious numbers to users. But it doesn't really go into the question of whether kind of advertisers were being directly defrauded for, you know, the clicks they received or things of that nature. Um, it does, however, call into question a bit um, the way that Facebook counts and represents uh its user numbers um, to both advertisers and potentially the public, although um, I'm reading a little bit between the lines there. And as you've reported, uh, part of the problem here is that there isn't an outside uh, credible authority that gets an inside look uh, under the hood to be able to say, you know, these numbers are good, these numbers are bad, these numbers are somewhere in the middle. Yeah, and this is something that... Um, I think kind of tying back this back to where we began this conversation as well um, is an issue is that all of this stuff um, with Australia, um, one of the things in the Australia law that uh, I think was pretty concerning to the platforms, Facebook included, uh, was the requirement that, um, uh, that news publications should be given sort of advance notice of any algorithm changes that might affect their um, performance on the platform, uh, which, as Liz noted, has been an issue that, you know, sort of decisions that Facebook made for its own purposes would um, abruptly change the fortunes of online publishers. And um, 
that's something that uh, they, I mean, just, it, it seems like governments around the world are pushing for more focus on, um, uh, more focus on sort of what is happening inside the company and also uh, to some degree, you know, how they can have more influence on it. Um, and, uh, you know, Facebook is, I would say, fighting that around the globe. Um, in some instances, it's, um, you know, stuff where I think there isn't much sympathy, at least from sort of Western democracies. In other instances, it's things where governments are trying to get sort of, let's say, Vietnam, trying to get more control over how Facebook uh, handles dissident political opinions. Um, so it's a it is a mess in which Facebook is sort of dealing with this, a whole bunch of different interests in a whole bunch of different places simultaneously. And I think, you know, Facebook's general position is that they would like to be left alone to, you know, run their platform as they see fit. Obviously the rest of the world doesn't necessarily line up with that. And yeah, we should mention not just Facebook per se, but Instagram and WhatsApp. We're talking about Facebook <laughs> with its uh, intergalactic ambitions and people's reactions to those uh, with Elizabeth Dwoskin, Silicon Valley correspondent for the Washington Post and Jeff Horowitz, Facebook beat reporter for the Wall Street Journal. What are your questions about Facebook? Does Facebook have too much power? Does it have not enough? Give us a call to join the conversation at 866 786 and now that you've got your phone at the ready 866-733-6786 you can also get in touch with us on facebook we're monitoring that page as well as on twitter we're at kqed forum or of course we still take email forum at kqed.org you're listening to forum i'm rachel myro We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. We're talking about more controversy at Facebook with a couple of reporters who spend much of their working lives focused on Facebook, Elizabeth Dwoskin of The Washington Post and Jeff Horowitz of The Wall Street Journal. Now and talk to Janice in Alameda, or is it Oakland? It's Oakland. Hi, Janice. Hi. Hi. Um, Yeah, so my question is, um, can stockholders of Facebook organize to have more influence on Facebook? Um, I get perspectives from them all the time and, um, and Twitter as well. Um, so that's what I'm wondering. Stockholder power. Uh, Elizabeth, you want to take that one on? I'm going to lob that one over to Jeff because he actually, uh, at, the, <laughs> at the Wall Street Journal, is covering more of the shareholder battle. 
Yeah. So on, on Facebook, uh, on Facebook, the answer to that question is emphatically no, um, not in any particularly meaningful way. Um, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, based on the way that voting shares are distributed while he owns a minority of the company, he, um, he does own the majority of the voting shares. So, um, there is, um, you know, no way that outside, um, shareholders would be in a position to, um, significantly alter, um, the way that, uh, the platform operates past campaigns, um, have issued some, um, I guess have issued some rebukes, but the, the form that rebuke comes in is that the number of truly independent shares um, or the, the truly independent shares um, that aren't controlled by Facebook insiders tend to line up in one direction. And then the Facebook insiders, most prominently Mr. Zuckerberg, line up the other direction and um, uh, override them. So there isn't really sort of a opportunity for that. So there's that question. It's a good one. Thank you for asking it, Janice. Uh, Elizabeth, I'll, I'll put to you a couple of listener comments that have come in uh, that I think reflect that there is sort of disagreement over over how Facebook manages uh, public discourse on its platform. Uh, one person writes, if I own a platform like Facebook and post something, uh, and you post something I don't like and I bump you, that should be my right, correct? I have the right to deny you access, even if you call it the obstruction of free speech. Uh, whereas Mark writes, given how much information they disseminate, why should Facebook and Twitter not be as answerable as radio and TV stations to the FCC? Yeah, these are, um, I mean, <laughs> just Facebook isn't, is right now not really answerable to anyone. I don't know if Jeff would, would agree with that. But, you know, as we said, you know, Zuckerberg has incredible power within the company. Um, the company is relatively, unreg- is relatively unregulated in the United States and in most countries where the laws um, were written before the, the laws were written about social, were written before social media was a thing. Uh, in Europe, they have a little more regulation, which they've complied with. To the listener's point, you know, if it's my company, isn't it my right to do what I want? Sure, but when your power becomes so great that you affect all people, then it becomes a government concern. And I think that's what these debates are about. One thing that we haven't talked about yet today is the Facebook Oversight Board. Now, at first I was really skeptical about Facebook basically paying to create this quote-unquote independent Supreme Court that would then be able you know, would be staffed with experts from all around the world and be able that that board could make binding decisions about Facebook's content. So if you're someone who's listening to the show who's ever said something on Facebook and had their content removed or taken down or gotten a label, you could appeal that decision. And the oversight board, which just started up a couple months ago, um, could make a dis- you know, could could reinstate your content. Um, at first, I was skeptical because it's paid for by Facebook. And I thought, why would this company that has so much power, why would they do anything to limit their power? Why would they do anything voluntary? But you can really see that it's a political strategy on one level where they're saying, yes, we'll farm out a very infinitesimal fraction of our decisions to outsiders. And remember, this board is only taking up a handful of cases of the millions and millions of content decisions that are made every day. And, um, 
And they're they're doing it politically to kind of show the world maybe there's a middle ground beyond government regulation. And maybe that middle ground is a, a private body like a Supreme Court that we agree um, can make some decisions for us. But again, it comes back to, to, the, to the listeners' questions. It comes back to that board is only going to have as much power as Facebook allows it to have, and that's the way they want it. Jeff, I'll, I'll have you take up this next question from Farhad in San Jose. Farhad, I, I understand you worked uh, uh, in Australia? Uh, hi. Yes, thank you for taking my call. I did. I worked for a, a, a social media company for a few years in Australia fairly recently. So um, this issue is, is near and dear to me. Um, and one thing I'm hearing, you know, almost universally on the ground from journalists, people in the tech space, et cetera, was just the like the gangster move that Facebook did to in the <laughs> middle of a government negotiation to pull the plug like this, knowingly pulling the plug on media sites, on government pages. If you look at their statement and parse the words, they know they did it. They did it intentionally to scare the government to back down for the position, which they did. And I saw a lot of tap dancing on Australia's grave from the U.S. tech press. And so I would encourage people to take a more global view of companies trying to deal with this threat. Um, and I know the, the, the guests on here have not done that. And my, my larger point would be um, Facebook invested millions, millions in Australia alone to get um, government pages, news media, journalists, et cetera, posting on the platform. So this idea that it was like some organic migration to Facebook for the traffic is just not true. And so I would love to hear from the guests, both in terms of their thoughts on kind of the PR and reputational damage that Facebook has done in Australia and globally based on this move that it didn't have to take. And also acknowledge the fact that the kind of migration to this platform was done very intentionally by Facebook. It was not done organically by a bunch of traffic-seeking media outlets. Thanks very much. Farhad, that's... Um, Thank you, Farhad. Jeff? I think that's a, a really interesting really interesting take on a few things here. Um, one, um, in terms of, in terms of sort of what Facebook is doing over there, I think it is, you're totally right. The way this was rolled out was truly terrible. Um, I have from time to time, um, so this happens about once a month. I, I ask Facebook, um, why something that appears to have been rolled out really poorly, let's say the, cause the actual decision of banning links on Facebook, as you know, there was a lot of collateral damage. They hit a whole bunch of, you know, local health organizations, political candidates. It was just sort of all over the map. Um, and I've never gotten a good answer from Facebook why teams of interns could not solve some of these problems um, because it, it just sometimes <laughs> seems like they didn't even check what they were disabling before they disabled it. So let's set that aside because I don't think even Facebook would argue that the way it ruled this out was any good. The, the larger question, though, and I think is kind of interesting, is that we have for years been looking at allegations that Facebook is not necessarily a healthy force in news, right? Uh, going back to 2016, um, uh, you know, fake news, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's been a lot of concerns that the incentives for publishers on Facebook are pretty bad um, and that you know, quality publishers, um, obviously that is a subjective term, um, tend to um, get beaten out by entities that are, you know, either just making things up in Macedonia um, or uh, are simply, um, uh, you know, just going for the worst bottom of the barrel kind of 
click-seeking behavior. And um, this is obviously now that Facebook has pulled out of it, or at least now what, what, after they pulled out of it, they got in a lot of trouble in Australia. And I think there's a there's kind of a question here of can't live with them, can't live without them uh, that's been going on um, because uh, to some degree, if you know, if Facebook hasn't figured out and been able to figure out how to appropriately handle political content on its site, which is something that Mark Zuckerberg more or less admitted earlier this year uh, after the Capitol riots um, and suggested it'd be better if there was sort of less political content in general. Is it really such a bad thing for uh, people to have to seek out news information uh, somewhere else other than Facebook? And so that's, uh, you know, I think, I don't know that there's a clear answer other than that everything seems very jumbled. Um, Obviously, Facebook making this play was very splashy and you know, I'm not totally clear who should be described as the winner or loser um, in the uh, the Australia decision um, that came out uh, last night U.S. time. Um, but it doesn't seem like anyone's got a particularly coherent position, um, you know, whether Facebook is uh, something that, you know, is an indispensable civic force or whether it is corrosive. Um, these are sort of kind of up in the air. And, and I see a whole bunch of people sort of picking and choosing in ways that don't seem necessarily intellectually compatible. Yeah. I sort of a weaponization. Yes. Uh, uh, yes, Elizabeth. Uh, just um, that this, this move in, to, to Farad's point, okay, this move in Australia, I'm trying, it, it's a short-term win. You can see the government renege today and put some amendments, created some amendments for the law that are more favorable to Facebook, but it's a short-term win. But Globally, it's a disaster. It's like losing the forest for the trees. I mean, what did they show? And and I wonder how much does this have to do with, you know, I said it before, Zuckerberg just kind of being maybe blinded a bit by his own aggression, because it doesn't seem very strategic. Um, like even Facebook's own former head of Australia said it was terrible and everyone should quit Facebook. You know, one time I had a source who told me, I'll never forget this anecdote, but um Zuckerberg told someone he worked with that he thought Facebook was more powerful than any country. He said Facebook is more powerful than a nation state. I put that in a story a couple of years ago. So he, you know, d- deeply believes that no, you know, no country can really control him, even if his uh, policy advisors, you know, they 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 all lobby and um, clearly are very anxious about potential government control. But fundamentally, I think the company is run by someone who believes they shouldn't be controlled at all and is going to really, really lash out. And um, but yet and also to Jeff's point, you know, that the biggest publishers on Facebook, many of them are right leaning. Like we've seen that in recent um, the whole the whole tilt of content is not balanced on Facebook. It has moved very much to the right in the United States and certain publishers that have put out misinformation are able to either game the algorithms or just get very large audiences that far surpass quote unquote mainstream news. So that question of um, is, is, was this, uh, is news on Facebook even a good thing? Um, It's so complicated because if you were to ask the publisher of the Washington post today, I'm sure he would tell you today that we really need Facebook. And same with the Wall, the Wall Street Journal, you know, News Corp, Murdoch, they, 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 they're negotiating with Facebook for a reason. They need Facebook, too. And they continued Facebook. But a lot of the people were also It's saying, just part of, the, uh, part of the landscape now. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro.
Well, we, we've got just a few minutes left, and, and so I want to raise what we have coming up uh, ahead of us uh, in, in the next few months. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg is preparing to testify before Congress. <laughs> this is going to be his fourth appearance since last July. Uh, I'd love to hear from both of you whether you think uh, the mood has shifted in D.C. and we're likely to see uh, finally some kind of regulatory crackdown or if we're just going to see more kabuki theater in Washington, D.C. Uh, Elizabeth, do you want to kick us off here? Uh, I think that, yes, this is a, I think we're going to see some kabuki theater, but potential action, I'll, I'll give a short answer for once. I think there's potential action because it is a Democratic-leaning Congress and a Democratic administration. So it's there's they're more able to get certain things done and social media is an area where both parties are pretty upset. They're upset for very different reasons, but um, they're both upset about at the social media companies. And so there could be some potential common ground. Um, yeah. So I think we'll see, I would, I would expect that there could more could happen now than there could in the previous administration, even though the previous administration was the one that really pushed these issues to the fore. Jeff? Have we lost you, Jeff? Sorry about that. Sorry about oh, that. I'm, I'm muted myself. Oh, um, you think are. I'm yeah. growing this a year into a pandemic? Um, so um, I think that Facebook, um, yes, they're going to be facing a lot of scrutiny. And yes, it will probably more be more organized than it was in the last administration. Um, the thing that seems most interesting and sort of most exciting to me as a reporter is the prospect that there might be um, uh, some requirements for sort of greater transparency in terms of how Facebook works. Something that's very apparent reporting on this company and talking to people inside it is that uh, the public conversation about um, what matters and sort of how Facebook goes about making its decision decisions are generally sort of pretty rudimentary outside the company. And that's, you know, not because everybody else outside is stupid necessarily. It's uh, because Facebook is the only entity that has access to data to be able to understand uh, the way its platforms work, um, what information is being distributed um, to users, uh, how misinformation um, and sort of polarizing content travels. Uh, as well as things like, um, you know, what advertisers are getting, user numbers, metrics, um, uh, and just sort of larger societal implications. So those are things that, you know, I, I don't know that they're as straightforward as we should break up Facebook um, or we shouldn't break up Facebook or Facebook is biased against conservatives or biased against uh, progressives. But they're kind of the places where hopefully we could go about getting someplace that's overall a little bit smarter and figuring out how to uh, incorporate social media into a more stable and functional um, kind of ecosystem of politics, news, um, you know, activism um, and entertainment, you know, because it crosses all of those boundaries. And so far, I don't think that we've had much success doing that. 
It, it sounds like what you're talking about, uh, you know, is, as you say, not so much, you know, an, an antitrust case or, or another congressional hearing, but really rewriting some major laws uh, to get at the way that Facebook and, for that matter, other Silicon Valley companies do business uh, today in 2021. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think I'm talking about something that's even a precursor to that, which is just understanding what exactly it is that that they are doing and what we want them to do. Uh, And I don't think those conversations have been had in a meaningful fashion yet. Um, I think the Australia thing is a great example of it, which is like, okay, well, what what exactly is Facebook's relationship with newspapers supposed to be or with with uh, with news outlets? Um, You know, who counts as a news outlet? Um, what, uh, you know, what does Facebook owe them? Um, is it just, uh, simply attention that Facebook is providing for free? And these are, these are sort of legitimate things. It's just that, um, uh, we haven't really gone into them much in, in great detail, um, or at least explored them in a meaningful way. And I guess I'll say, uh, you know, I'm personally slightly bummed that I'm not going to be able to see Australia as a native experiment in what happens when, uh, news is completely taken off of Facebook. Um, it would be interesting to me to see that. Uh, so, um, you know, hopefully there will be... Um, Spoken like uh, a scientist, not a journalist. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to... Um, I'd well, love with to that, I'm going to thank you both because we're... Yeah. You'll love reporting on it for sure. That is Jeff Horowitz, a Facebook beat reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much for being here this hour. And also Elizabeth Dwoskin, Silicon Valley correspondent for the Washington Post. The conversation continues online. You can find us at kqed.org slash forum. Thanks so much for listening this hour. I'm Rachel Myro. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.